0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Tuesday. And coming up over the next hour, Russia under fire. A new wave of drone strikes plague the Russian capital Plus, evacuating Niger, France begins the evacuation of European citizens following last week's coup. We'll have a live report in just a few moments' time. Meanwhile, Beijing soaked a powerful typhoon delivering the heaviest rainfall in a decade, causing floods and landslides. And grayer clouds over the economic outlook there too. New home sales in China dropping more than 30% from a year ago with July seeing the lowest monthly sales in three years. Allianz Chief Economic Advisor Mohammed el Irian will join us to discuss potential stimulus there and the challenges, the multitude of challenges still facing global central banks. But some clouds have silver linings and that's the case on Wall Street where the S&P now sits at 16 month highs the majors ending July on a positive note the Nasdaq in fact the tech heavy sector gaining 4% last month alone And here is the pre-market picture as investors digest ever more earnings news. Uber just posting its first ever unadjusted operating profit and raising guidance. Starbucks and chipmaker AMD set to report after the closing bell today too. Lots coming up and we do begin with the latest from Moscow and another wave of drone strikes over the city. The mayor says several of them were shot down one crashed into a high-rise tower, the same building, in fact, that was struck in a previous attack on Sunday. And overnight, Ukrainian officials reported three Russian drone strikes on the city of Kharkiv in densely populated areas. Flapp Reichen joins us now. Fred, two observations on this. Ukraine, despite Russia's air superiority, mm. still managing to get drones over Moscow. And, of course, the Russians seemingly still proving very adept at intercepting and destroying them.
3: Yeah, that's what the Russians say, that they managed to intercept and, as they put it, foil this attack. But, of course, it is quite remarkable that uh, the city of Moscow faced a drone attack uh, on two day, to, uh, to, uh, for the second time uh, in just three days. And, you know, certainly one of the interesting things that we've been observing in all of this is while the Russians say that this drone attack was foiled, that these drones apparently hit exactly the same building, or at least one of them hit exactly the same building, uh, that was hit just uh, two days ago. So... Um, With that building, we know that that area, the Moscow city, is essentially Moscow's financial district. Anybody who knows the city of Moscow knows there's a bunch of high-rise buildings there. I think the place it would be comparable almost to is La Défense in Paris, where you have those high-rise buildings in that one area of Paris. Very similar situation there in Moscow, fairly close to the city center. But that building in itself, despite the fact that there's mostly financial companies in that area, That does house some government offices, Uh, one of them being uh, the uh, economy ministry has uh, an office in there. Also, the Ministry of Digital Development also has an office apparently in that building as well. So certainly, it seems as though some government places or at least a building with some government entities in it may have been struck here in uh, in this attack. The Ukrainians, for their part, are not saying what the target was. But there was an advisor to the presidential administration of Ukraine who came out that Moscow is getting used to becoming a frontline city in the war with Ukraine. So certainly the Ukrainians are saying this is something that is not going to stop. I thought it was quite interesting because we did hear some residents on some videos after this drone attack took place saying that some of them had actually gone to see the aftermath of the last drone attack, which happened on Sunday, and then all of a sudden heard a loud explosion once again. So certainly quite troubling for the folks there in Moscow and the Kremlin itself, Julia, Also coming out and saying, yes, this is definitely a threat and certainly something that the Russians say is being addressed. They said that this this last wave of drones, that one of them was taken down by air defense system, but one was also taken down, as they put it, by electronic countermeasures, which seems to be some sort of electronic suppression of the aircraft that caused it to, to crash. But certainly some damage done to that building and certainly also some damage done uh, to the calm of the folks there in Moscow who once again find themselves under fire, Julia.
2: Certainly. Fred Plattgen, thank you for that. And across the border, Ukrainian officials say their southeastern counteroffensive is still making steady gains. But we know progress is slower than hoped. And the concern is that gains could be tough to hold. Nick Peyton Walsh reports.
4: The fight so fierce and victory so bitter, there is little left of Staromayorsky to defend it from. No cover for troops, no structures, just the dust of a tiny four-road village, the first gains of Ukraine's renewed full-throttle counter-offensive. So small but symbolic... Russia even claimed Monday, with constant shelling, it had pushed Ukraine out of it again. Something these men, fresh back from that fight, would scoff at. Krivbas, his call sign, fought all the 10 days of the assault until the Russians finally fled. Here he is, as shells rain around in the initial advance. When you assault under enemy shelling, he says, you have nowhere to hide. That's the hardest part. They've since tried to assault again twice with small groups. And he fought for here too, Neskuchny, the town before it, where the Russians hid 200 troops in the basements, not even leaving for the toilet, so Ukraine attacked with a smaller force. He takes us to where the Russians made their final stand, the school hall and its corridors. There is no love, says the wall. They seemed to relish the nothing they brought and left no clues as to why they fought. One of the hard things for... The Ukrainians to understand is quite why the Russians are fighting so hard for here, Neskuchny, and the more recent victory of Staromayorsky down the road. Is it that these are their last lines of defense? Well, no, they think there's far more fighting to be done. I hope that when we get through their last line of defense, he says, then they start to run. For now, they still feel there is something behind them. Yeah, we feel support but we are very, very tired. There is so much more ahead to come. Ukraine may have put in its reserves now to the fight, but they face the same Russian brutality. Their tactics haven't changed, he says. They put the Stormzy convicts in front with no communications or information. They stand till the death. I don't understand their motivation or what they're fighting for. Reva carries a new Russian AK 12 as a trophy as he describes the gas they used on him. There was chaotic shooting, he says, to find out where we were. Then the gas. You don't feel it, it moves slow along the ground. I was packing my rucksack when I felt burning on my throat and nose. One mine sapper, call sign Volt, is busy telling me how the Russians have started booby trapping mines, putting a grenade under an anti tank mine when he's interrupted. Almost endless, the noise of outgoing fire. They are moving, but just not sure how much longer for. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, Neskuchny, Ukraine.
2: And it's been almost a week now since the military coup in Niger. Now officials in France and Italy say they're preparing to evacuate their citizens from the nation's capital. French officials also announced they will evacuate embassy staff. The French foreign ministry said that violence and the closure of Niger's airspace leaves French citizens without the ability to leave the country by their own means. Italy announced a special flight for its nationals wanting to leave too. Larry Medeo joins us on this larry what kind of scale of operation are we talking about do we have a sense of numbers of people that are going to be evacuated in this process
5: julia the french say they have about several hundred citizens in the country and several hundred more european citizens that it will be helping to evacuate out of the country the spanish also said that they will be evacuating their citizens they have just about 70. the germans and the dutch say they're closely monitoring the situation but this action by the french is not surprising after sunday's protest outside of its embassy in niamey which the french believe was organized and coordinated by the military junta or those supporting it they felt that they had no choice but to do this because of this growing anti-french sentiment in the country the french foreign ministry says that the first Evacuation flight is airborne. It's not clear to us if that airborne means it's left Paris on its way to Niamey or it's left Niger on its way back to Paris. At the same time, they're saying this operation should be over in about 24 hours. So that's not a big number considering the number of evacuations we saw, for instance, out of Sudan when that conflict began there between the RSF and the army. But this is just the latest escalation in this situation where... Some Western allies still consider domestic dispute between President Mohammed Bazoum and the head of the Presidential Guard, who's now declared himself, General Tiani, as the leader of the National Council to Safeguard the Country. The military junta now running Niger have gotten a huge boost from neighboring countries that have also had coups in recent years, Burkina Faso, Mali, and Guinea. Watch what these statements all overnight, seemingly coordinated, said warn that any military intervention against Niger would amount to a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. I repeat, forewarn, that any military intervention against Niger would amount to a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. I repeat one last time warn that any military intervention against Niger would amount to a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and
3: Mali. The transitional governments of Burkina Faso and Mali invite the living forces to be ready and mobilised, to lend a hand to the people of Niger in these dark hours of Pan-Africanism.
6: the brotherly peoples of mali burkina faso niger guinea aspire to more recognition and respect for their sovereignty
5: sovereignty is the word you keep hearing again and again in the region why are the military juntas in guinea in burkina faso and mali so aggressively supporting niger because if this military intervention that ECOWAS has threatened, the regional bloc, if they were to invade Niger and restore the president of Mohammed Bazoum, his government, there's no reason why they can't do the same in Burkina Faso or in Mali or in Guinea. So this club of coup plotters have to stick together. They're all suspended from ECOWAS, the regional body. They are all isolated from the rest of the international community. And the only fraternity they have is among themselves. And they're riding this public wave of anti-French sentiment, anti-international meddling that exists along the region, Julia. So they had no choice but to do this.
2: Yes, protecting Niger and themselves, or at least the coup plotters and themselves. Larry Madoa, thank you for that. Now, torrential rain and major flooding in Beijing has led to the deaths of at least 11 people. That's according to local reports. Extreme weather, including heavy downpours, are expected to continue through Thursday, raising fears of further flooding and the potential for further landslides, as Mark Stewart reports.
7: Violent floodwaters race across China after record-setting rain, destroying roads flooding streets, and prompting rescues in the aftermath of Typhoon Doksuri.
3: I say, it's the first time in my life that I've seen such a scary flood. I haven't seen this before, and hence it's scary. I've lived so long,
6: and I've not seen this before.
7: Near the capital, Beijing, the force so fierce, the driver is trapped in their car amid the raging water. A rescue worker drops a line and the driver is hoisted to safety. In Beijing, a giant hole sits in front of a newly opened mall. One of the venues from the 2022 Winter Olympic Games is underwater. And a recently built hotel is damaged, according to a state-run media outlet. In some cases, the water is so high it nearly tops the power lines, riverbanks are hovering close to the street, and where the water has receded, a mess is left behind. The flooding is disrupting everyday life. At a Beijing airport, water is flooding the tarmac, flights are facing delays, and in some cases, trains are at a standstill. Evacuations are underway in Beijing. Tourist attractions remain closed. As emergency workers do what they can to help, family members are looking for loved ones. A city brought to a standstill as another massive storm lingers in the horizon. Mark Stewart, CNN, Tokyo.
2: Myanmar's ruling military junta has pardoned former leader Aung San Suu Kyi on five charges this reduces her lengthy prison sentence dealt after the junta seized power back in 2021. But the 78-year-old still faces decades of detention on other convictions. The Myanmar Supreme Court is set to hear appeals against her other charges over the next two weeks. OK, coming up on the show, housing sales slump in China. We'll discuss more troubling data and hopes for further stimulus with economist Mohamed El-Erian right after this. And later, a solar-powered car that looks something straight from the future. I'll discuss with the CEO of the California startup later this hour.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit slash awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Welcome back to First Move.
2: China's housing slowdown not over yet. New home sales data taken from 100 of China's biggest developers plunged by 33% in July compared with a year ago. That's actually the steepest monthly decline in a year. The report comes as the country's biggest property developer, Country Garden, abruptly pulled an attempt to raise $300 million by issuing new shares in Hong Kong. Just for context, the property market represents nearly 30% of the nation's economy. And at a time when indicators of manufacturing and services activity are slowing and concerns over youth unemployment and deflationary pressures are rising. Something else that's rising? Hopes for stimulus support. Joining us now is Mohamed el Arian, Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz and Gramercy Funds. He's also the President of Queen's College, Cambridge University. Mohamed, fantastic to have you on the show as always. We've got much to discuss, but I do want to begin in China. What we're seeing ties with what we're seeing in the survey data, particularly for manufacturing. It's in contractionary territory, pushing the burden onto the consumer, onto the services sector and ultimately the government.
8: Yes, absolutely. In fact, one of the big disappointments of this year is that the bounce back in China from COVID shutdowns has not been as buoyant as people expected. We knew they had a manufacturing problem. We knew they had a housing problem. But what today's data show is that the consumer is starting to become more risk averse. The consumer is engaging less with the economy, starting with property. And that is of worry, of a worry, because it is the service sector that is supposed to be the engine of growth when housing and manufacturing are struggling.
2: I mean, some part of that is government-engineered. Um, you can hope for more stimulus support from the government, but it's tough to reduce sectors that they've deliberately tried to deflate or take some of the steam out, like the property sector. And you have this overhang, I think, from from the pandemic and cautiousness within the consumer. Um, how do you unwind? both of those things or tackle both of those things.
8: So you're absolutely right. And it speaks to the bigger issue, which is that China no longer has a potent growth model. China is no longer an economy where the government can step in and inject lots of stimulus and hope that that kickstarts an activity that they can step away. They're worried about pockets of leverage and over indebtedness in housing. And also they're no longer having the, the global economy as a tailwind. The global economy has become a headwind. So what do they need to do? They need to accelerate their domestic structural reforms. And that means letting go politically so that the bottom up can become the source of growth. And that's where economics and politics start becoming inconsistent with each other.
2: It's also where mistakes happen as we've seen in the past, and they end up taking even more control back through um, volatility that it creates. Compared to what we've seen in the past, Mohammed, how big of a problem is this for the rest of the world? The, the growth rebound disappointments, the potential perhaps for what you're suggesting and the ensuing volatility that it may create?
8: So on the surface, it's not as big of a concern. And you only need to cite two uh, metrics. One is what's been happening to oil and commodity prices. They've gone up strongly in July, despite signs of a weaker China. And two, look at how well, as you cited earlier, we've done in U.S. equities. So on the surface, it appears that China is less important. Having said that, look at what's happening to manufacturing in Asia as a whole. Japan and Taiwan issued their indicators showing contraction. So I think it's much more regional than it is global, but China still matters. And China matters because people were hoping that it would be the engine of growth this year as Europe and the US slow down to get rid of their inflation problems.
2: Yeah. And policy central banking has been a delicate and difficult dance, I think, for many months, wherever you look in the world, quite frankly. But you wrote recently, and I want to sort of shift shift gears and and look at this, about perhaps who has the bigger challenge at this present time between Japan, which is having fun and games, uh, the United States, which we've talked about a lot, and also the Bank of England. And what with the weakest growth and the highest inflation rates in the G7, you say actually the Bank of England has perhaps the, the most difficult challenge managing the situation today.
8: It certainly does compared to the Federal Reserve and to the European Central Bank. Why? Because it's dealing with structural problems and not getting enough help from the government. So it starts with a much higher inflation rate, 7.9 percent. It has a lot of real wage resistance. Wages are growing at 7 percent. And in addition to that, it doesn't have the flexible economy that the US has or the trade that the eurozone has. So when you look at the task of the Bank of England, it's much harder. The one that is equally difficult is the Bank of Japan, but the Bank of Japan has more time. Why is the Bank of Japan difficult? Because they have to get out of an increasingly unsustainable policy of reducing artificially interest rates. And that is a very difficult policy to exit from, and it has to be done very carefully. So central bank challenges are not over as yet.
2: Uh, I want, I'll talk to you again about the, um, the Japanese central bank, because I have a question on that, too. But just for the Bank of England, I think um, that the challenge that they've got is now that they have to tolerate higher inflation than they would like, or they kick on and continue to raise interest rates. And there's certainly, I think, noise or fear that what you create there is real concern, tension, issues in the mortgage market in particular. Mohammed, how concerned are you by the risks surrounding specifically the mortgage market in the UK?
8: So we've seen it again today. Um, mm. Housing numbers are really worrisome. And that's not surprising because mortgage rates have shot up in a very meaningful way and people are rolling off their mortgages because the average length of a mortgage in the UK is much less in the US. And that's the dilemma for the Bank of England. If it continues going it alone, which means hiking at least two more times, it risks a mortgage crisis. If however, it doesn't continue, it risks inflation, as you said, higher for longer. The real solution is for the government to come and help on the supply side an enhanced supply. And the government has spoken to that, but the actions so far have fallen short of what's needed.
2: And then if we weave in Japan, and you said they have the sort of luxury, perhaps of a little bit more time to react, but what we saw in the past week was them providing a little bit more flexibility over where interest rates can go. And then, of course, as you would expect, investors tested them to see what they really meant. And then they said, OK, fine, we're going to add a supplementary bond buying program to try and manage that and bring those rates back down. Um, The problem is none of these things are mutually exclusive. Bond markets around the world are connected by the investors that that invest in these products. How worried are you by a sort of mismanagement of, of what we see in Japan having an impact on particularly the UK, but other nations as well?
8: It's something that we should all worry about because if if it's mishandled, and I say if because the Japanese could handle it well, but if it's mishandled, we will feel it in two ways. First, an upward pressure on government bond yields across the world. Like you say, they are all interconnected. So if Japan loses control of its government bond market, this will put upward pressure on interest rates around the world. Second, is the concern that the Japanese investors hold a lot of foreign securities. And if they incur losses on the domestic holdings, as interest rates go up and prices come down, then they'll be forced to sell. So you would get not only the price effect, but you would also get the quantity effect. That's what people are worried about. It is not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. But what the last few days have told us as you point out, is be careful of the muddled middle. You cannot get stuck in a situation whereby you signal one thing and then when the market tests you, you go back to doing what you used to be doing before. You've got to have a strategic commitment and move forward. And hopefully the Japanese authorities understand that because otherwise this muddled middle will end up really hurting them.
2: I think the muddled middle is a perfect phrase for, quite frankly, where we've been in policy all over the world for a a number of years now, particularly where monetary policy is concerned, never mind anything else. Um, Wrap this up. What does this mean for investors, Mohammed? A lot of people, I think, now looking at, as the Federal Reserve has now echoed what you've been saying now for many months, and then they're not expecting a a recession in the United States. But stocks have had um, a great year, I think, so far. I'm sure investors now are wondering... what happens for the rest of the year?
8: I mean, they've had a wonderful year. Um, if you look at the, the US, the s and is up almost 20 percent, five straight months of gains. If you were lucky enough to be in the Nasdaq, that's over up over 30 percent. I don't think anybody in the beginning of the year thought we would have these gains. Look, I, I say it's very simple. There is reason to still be optimistic short-term. However, the longer term is really uncertain. So you may want to take some chips off the table here. You've had a wonderful run. Um, There may be some more short-term gains, but one has to recognize that the longer term is still uncertain economically, financially, socially, and institutionally. So you may want to take some chips off the table here after what has been a, a wonderful seven months.
2: Yes. Be grateful for what you've achieved this year and um, don't get greedy. Uh, Mohammed, always a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. Thank you so much. Mohamed al Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz and Gramercy Funds. Okay, stay with CNN. Coming up two months after the industry itself raised fears of an AI Armageddon, China is announcing rules of engagement. We'll explore next. Welcome back to First Move. Wall Street's first day of trade for August is now underway, and stocks opening lower as a busy earnings week continues. Qualcomm and Shopify set to report on Wednesday, followed by the big guns Apple and Amazon on Thursday, and then on Friday too, the U.S. jobs report for July. Let's give a look. Uh, let's give you a look at what we're seeing in terms of some of the big players today. Right now, shares of Uber under a bit of pressure. It posted its first ever unadjusted operating profit in the latest quarter and offered solid guidance, though revenues disappointed slightly. Context on this one perhaps is important. It's up 85% year to date. So Uber had one heck of a recovery this year. HSBC also gaining after profits doubled, nearly doubled in the second quarter. The bank also raising its outlook for the rest of the year, citing higher interest rates. Now, China is set to implement new guardrails for the use of artificial intelligence-driven models like ChatGPT being built in the country. Now, while many of them focus on traditional measures like transparency, discrimination and intellectual property protections, others are uniquely Chinese, focusing on things like adherence to socialist values. The new rules come into effect in two weeks' time, and Christy Lu has more.
6: Meet Xi Jia Jia, a virtual idol powered by artificial intelligence to sell burgers in China. McDonald's hired Jia Jia to interact with Chinese customers. The U.S. may be curbing AI chip exports to China, but the nation is fast becoming an AI powerhouse. The country is home to top tech firms leading the AI charge, like Alibaba, Huawei. Tencent and Baidu, creator of Shijiajia, boasts that its chatbot Ernie has beaten OpenAI's ChatGPT on several metrics. At the state-backed World AI Conference in July, billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk praised China's AI prowess.
9: China will have very strong AI capability is my prediction.
6: China has become one of the first countries in the world to regulate the technology that powers popular services like ChatGPT. In July, it unveiled interim rules to manage generative AI, saying it needs to be in line with the core values of socialism. The Chinese government is trying to ensure that um, the the use and application of AI uh, will be aligned with its own set of moral principles um, that underscores its political and um, social stability. The government not only placed the burden on the service providers, but also on the users of AI services. In January, China's new rules against deepfake technologies came into effect. Chinese authorities have detained people for allegedly using generative AI to commit fraud and create fake news. And while China is moving fast to regulate the industry, some critics warn that it may not be equipped to avoid an AI disaster.
0: Most societies kind of learn from disasters, but the PRC has a kind of propaganda machine that makes it hard to do that, where there's a sort of disaster amnesia. There's a kind of a chronic culture of crisis mismanagement in authoritarian regimes, generally, and China's no exception.
6: Drexel cites China's zero-COVID policy as a recent example of crisis mismanagement. But the danger posed by AI is not limited to one country. Top technologists the world over, including China, have signed this petition to warn of the risk of human extinction from AI.
4: As these systems get very, very powerful, Um, That that does require special concern, and, and it has global impact, so it also requires global cooperation.
6: China's new AI rules have a provision to encourage participation in global standard setting. They are very keen to take part in shaping global regulation of AI. For now, Beijing is steering its own AI future with a heavy hand. To encourage Chinese tech success and ensure that artificial intelligence will not undermine the state. Christy Lou Stout CNN Hong Kong.
2: Okay, coming up after the break. Fancy a drive in this solar-powered spaceship-style three-wheeler? Aptera, the firm behind it, is up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify Welcome back to First Move and to a car conversation that could have been lifted from the pages of a sci-fi novel. The Abtera solar electric car is being developed by a startup in California, the land of sunshine. And for people who drive 65 kilometers a day or less, they say it won't cost a cent. They also promise a full charge of the battery can let you travel up to 1600 kilometers. Now, 40,000 people have signed up to buy, but they may have a wait. Just to give you a sense, in July, the firm completed wind tunnel tests in Italy. Now, we'll discuss the design intended to produce the lowest drag coefficient among all production passenger vehicles. Aptera claims it's three times more efficient than a Tesla Model S. Now, as you can imagine, the cash burn probably almost as hot as the sun, and that's what every car maker tells us on first move. Aptera is using a novel way to address that by crowdfunding for the money it needs. And Chris Anthony is Aptera's CEO, and he joins us now. Wow, Chris, we have a lot to discuss. Give us the strongest selling point and why forty thousand people have decided they want to buy this in future.
9: Well, the Upterra is brutal execution on first principles engineering. It starts with aerodynamics, lightweight and a super efficient powertrain that can get you over 1600 kilometers of range in one direction. And I think the vehicle looks unique. It looks like the future. And I think people are drawn to solutions that can really make the world a better place. And, and Aptera is it.
2: And what's the nought to 60, the first question I get asked when I talk about cars?
9: <laughs> 0 to 100 kilometers an hour in four seconds because it's so lightweight, it, uh, it really zips around. Ah,
2: okay, perfect. And um, as you and I mentioned in the introduction there, obviously there is the opportunity to charge this if you want to, but if uh, people who are not traveling that far and if they're just doing short distances, um, this one's on solar energy. <laughs>
9: Yeah, we have Tesla supercharger access and the base vehicle acts just like any other electric vehicle, really. The cool thing about Aptera is because it's so efficient, we actually have solar panels on the top that can trickle charge the battery every time it's out in the sun. You get about 60, 65 kilometers a day of free power just from the sun if you leave it outside.
2: What if it's not sunny? What if it's just daylight?
9: Yeah, in, uh, in Southern California, we get, you know, 16,000 kilometers a year of free driving. If you live in a more dreary place uh, like the UK or Boston or Seattle, uh, that may be closer to 12,000 kilometers of free driving a year. But that's still a pretty impactful amount, um, especially when people are paying, you know, $6 a gallon for fuel in the U.S. for, for free transportation. Um, you know, the Eptera is a, a very interesting proposition for people
2: who's the customer it's a It's a unique design we're just looking at the pictures now, and I'm sure a number of our viewers will be like, "hmm, you know we're comparing it to the relative efficiency of a Tesla as you say, but um, it looks pretty different
9: yeah, we started with the the engineering of the vehicle to make the most efficient thing possible. We didn't really start with a market segment or a focus group or we wanted to get into, you know, crossover SUV with 16 cup holders. Uh, We solved the equation for vehicle efficiency um, and that equation looks like the Aptera. Most vehicles on the road today use 60 to 70% of their fuel just pushing air out of the way at highway speeds. So if you wanna have a really efficient vehicle, it's gotta look very different. It's gotta be super aerodynamic, next biggest losses from weight, uh, rolling resistance, uh, and then powertrain losses. So we solved those three equations, and we get something that gets over 350 miles per gallon equivalent.
2: And it's just a two-seater, just to be clear.
9: Two-seater side by side, and you got plenty of storage in the back. You can put a couple mountain bikes back there, a seven-foot surfboard. You actually have a camping kit where you put a tent over the back and you can actually camp in the Aptera. You can drive 200 miles to your favorite camping location, camp for a week and actually come back with more energy in your Aptera than you left with.
2: Okay, eagle-eyed viewers there will have spotted a price. What's the price of this on the road?
9: Uh, the base vehicle is about $26,000. that gets you at 250 miles of range. And then you can um, get options on the drivetrain and the battery pack to get you all the way up to 1,000 miles of range, 1,600 kilometers of range. And that costs around $45,000.
2: Okay, so the key now is when is it going to be on the road available for people to buy. And as I mentioned in the introduction and the conversation that we always have with people building new cars or innovating is that it's a cash burn business. Talk to me about crowdfunding to raise money. Why go that route? Why not have a conversation with a bank or or big investors? Why such small sums of money?
9: Yeah, we have over 16,000 investors in Aptera now. It's the most successful crowdfunding in history. Um, And we're putting that money to, to good use to get the first validation vehicles done by the end of this year, and hopefully start delivering vehicles to customers by next summer. Uh, but crowdfunding has been just amazing for us. It's a, it's a tool where you can invest in innovative companies early on. I would have loved to invest it in early Tesla, early Google, uh, but you know, a decade ago, it just wasn't available. Um, it's a recent proposition uh, that Congress passed legislation to allow for this type of crowdfunding. And we think it's exciting that people can buy into equity uh, in Aptera and kind of take the journey with us into making uh, transportation solar powered and making the world a cleaner, greener place for transportation.
2: So, but you, you also have to protect these people to some degree and provide some kind of return. Are you saying that you did this because you wanted the opportunity to give people the opportunity to invest in an innovative early, early stage company versus going to a bank and perhaps getting more stable money, for example, expensive perhaps?
9: Yeah. Uh, we think that uh, being able to invest uh, early in great ideas ideas like this is, is amazing for for many reasons for people. Um, and for us, it gives us more flexibility in how we raise the money. Uh, we don't have to take on onerous terms. It might come from a VC or an investment bank. Um, and we're able to grow the company you know, kind of on our terms. Uh, built by the people, for the people, uh, not built by the banks. So I, uh, I think it's an amazing proposition for people to uh, be able to invest in amazing ideas like Appara and, and other, other things.
2: And how much have you raised?
9: Uh, we raised about $90 million from the crowd uh, and we raised another $20 million privately.
2: And there's a pause at the moment. You're talking to the SEC, I know, about I think changes of documentation between accredited investors and not accredited investors. Obviously, that depends on the individual's wealth, whether they're considered accredited or otherwise. Um, Chris, can you explain that? And can you just confirm to me that as you're taking this crowdfunding money, the earlier investors and and some of the owners of the business aren't sort of taking their money out? Is this purely going to build the the car?
9: Yeah, the, uh, the earliest investors in Eptera um, invested at 20 cents a share. Uh, we've gone through, through successive crowdfunding rounds. Uh, now we're selling equity at 1050 a share. But our crowdfunding has been so successful, we keep uh, reaching the cap for our annual limit, which is 75 million a year. Uh, so we have to refile with the SEC to raise that cap uh so we can kind of do a rolling 75 million a year so uh the the unaccredited round is paused right now uh but it should be open in the next couple of weeks uh but we can always take uh in accredited investors under a reg d uh, application and you know that's that's kind of limitless we can raise as much money as we want for, from accredited investors
2: cool and just to reiterate yeah. none of none of you guys have taken any money out you guys are all still in there
9: Oh yeah, yeah, we, uh, we, we hope to take the company public, uh, as we start production. Uh, and I think that's an amazing proposition for all our 16,000 investors. Uh, everybody wants to see the day when we're, we're publicly traded and we have the capital to uh, grow the company effectively, um, and make new vehicles, not just this three wheel vehicle, but others for, you know, package delivery, food delivery, uh, more commercial applications, possibly a five seater, uh, in the future. So it's an exciting time to launch this vehicle and it's an exciting time to have all these uh, investors and in support. Um, and, uh, you know, we're looking forward to delivering our first vehicles here in about a year.
2: Yeah, watch out, Elon Musk. Um, Chris, love your ambition. Come back and talk to us soon, please. Um, I'm interested to track progress. Great to chat to you. Chris Anthony there, you so the CEO of Aptera. Thank you. All right, coming up on First Move, seven goals in one big match as China faces England at the World Cup. Which of the two powerhouses is advancing? Find out next. Welcome back to First Move and to the latest from the Women's World Cup. England dominating China with six goals. There's no bias on this show, but hooray! The Lionesses ended China's journey at the group stage for the first time ever. Meanwhile, the United States survives a late scare, narrowly reaching the knockout stages. Patrick Snell joins me now. Oh, Patrick, somebody did that deliberately. So I have to ask you about the USA first. Boo. No. <laughs> <Go> on, <tell laughs> no me. bias ever. Right, Julia? <laughs> Never. I hear
10: you. Let's start. Okay, then let's start with Team USA. They are the reigning world champions. They did survive one big scare on Tuesday. No question about that. Let's get straight to it. 91 minutes on the clock against tournament debutants Portugal. What a chance this is for Ana Capeta. If this goes in, then it's Portugal who advance and the USA go out upon fine margins. The USA eventually advancing but not really is one huge scale. Let's hear from uh, some very relieved Team USA perspective now.
0: It's tough to be second. We wanted to go through first. I mean, this team gave everything. We just didn't put the ball in the back of the net. and in the last few minutes, we just had to hold it down. We had to um, get the result and move on. They got their
6: you know, World Cup on the line. We had our World Cup on the line. So, uh, of course, those moments are going to be intense. Um, we're thrilled to be going on to the next stage. Um, it's exactly what we wanted out of this match, ultimately, is to have another one. So, on to the round of 16. i um, excited to see
2: who we play.
10: Could well be Sweden. All right, let's check in on who won the group then. That would be the Netherlands, Julia. Emphatic 7-0 winners over Vietnam earlier today. A really standout performance from the team, but in particular Esme Brug who scored not one, but two fantastic goals of the highest calibre. Look at the swerve and precision she puts on her shots there. Fantastic. It's the Netherlands who win the group by two points. Team USA in second place, and they don't like playing second fiddle to anyone in Julia.
2: What a wonderful goal, that second one especially. Um, Okay, so now is the moment with huge apologies (laughs) to our beloved Chinese viewers and football lovers in particular. Let's talk about England's goals.
10: Yeah. Yeah absolutely superb performance from the reigning european champion showing all their class the lionesses got off to a really good start in this one and they just kept building on it take a bow lauren james who could well poised to be one of the breakout stars at this women's world cup 6-1 england over china in adelaide earlier two wonderful goals from lauren james who plays a club football uh, for Chelsea, three assists. Well, that's a stunning finish from her. Absolutely fantastic. England will play Nigeria next, by the way, in the round of 16. And remember, she also scored the game winner against Denmark in the previous round of games. Absolutely superb. England, emphatic winners. Julia.
2: Woohoo! No <laughs> bias. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Patrick Snell, thank you and finally on first move please bear with me and check out this video rumors and conspiracy theories have been swirling on social media thanks to this viral video from a zoo in eastern china now this is supposed to be a sun bear standing on its hind legs and appears to be waving at the crowd Mm -hmm. now some people believe it's actually a person in a costume So the zoo has officially denied the claims and insists people just don't understand that this is actually how bears behave. Fun fact, some bears are the world's smallest species of bear. Yeah, I don't know. Watch that video back. Rewind this and watch it back. I have my own views. Something weird about that. And that's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Ben Mankiewicz. On this season of The Plot Thickens, we're exploring the world of renegade movie director John Ford. Ford was a living legend, a cinematic giant, and also a notorious egomaniac who could unload on actors. You'll hear from the best of them, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, even Ricardo Montalban. Find out how Ford's legacy survives his personal demons. The Plot Thickens, Decoding John Ford, hosted by me, Ben Mankiewicz. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.